Being able to pay for basic needs like food and rent, that should be normal, right? However, this is not always the case, and that doesn't just count for people far away in countries of the global south, but also inside the European Union, which is one of the richest regions on Earth. Founded as a political, social and economic alliance, the goal of the EU is to strengthen the economy of all member states and to increase the wealth of their population. Yet, in recent years, due to a multitude of crises like the Covid pandemic, the gap between the rich and the poor has increased. As one step to tackle this inequality, the European Commission proposed legislation to provide more effective minimum wage protection. As low-wage workers are vulnerable to economic downturns, this protection is essential for the purpose of supporting a sustainable and inclusive economic recovery, which should lead to an increase in quality employment, according to the directive that followed negotiations between the European Parliament and the Council of the EU. This directive has been adopted in October 2022. In today's episode, we will have a deeper look at it. This is... We Work Europe. The podcast of the European Centre for Workers' Questions. Presenting the Directive for Increasing Minimum Wages in the EU has come a long way. Negotiations on top of negotiations. Key roles in bringing the Directive to life are played by two members of the European Parliament. Dennis Radke, member of the Christian Democrats in Germany. He is also a member of the transnational organisation EPP, which stands for the European People's Party. And Agnes Jongerius, She is a member of the Labour Party in the Netherlands and part of the group of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats. Radke and Jongerius, they both have been rapporteurs of this directive representing the European Parliament. This key role implies going into trialogue with the European Council and European Commission. The interview with Agnes Jongerius and Dennis Radke that you were about to hear was conducted separately by Sergio de la Parra of ESA's office in Brussels. So today we are talking about the Minimum Wages Directive, which was approved a couple of weeks ago. Can you first start explaining what is uh, a minimum wage? What are we talking about? We are talking now uh, also about minimum income. What's the difference, for instance? The main difference is uh, minimum wages. We are talking about the absolute minimum you get directly from the work you are doing so minimum income is a is a more broader perspective so we are discussing about what has to be ensured at social security level in some member states this wage uh, minimum uh, bottom of the pyramid is being defined by a collective agreement in some countries uh, there is a statutory minimum wage so it's the government who's deciding what at least uh, someone working uh, full-time is earning. 
sometimes we have a combination, but it's always, let's say, uh, no one, no employer is allowed to pay a worker less uh, than the minimum wage. You already mentioned uh, the two systems to define these minimum wages. So the statutory minimum wage is set by law and those uh, agreed between employers and employees. Why did the union decide to intervene? What was the problem they tried to address? Why was an action by the EU necessary? Uh, I think uh, in her first address to the European Parliament, Ursula von der Leyen, She made the statement that uh, everyone who is working hard should be able to pay their bills and have a decent life. And the fact that she made this statement uh, was, I think, an acknowledgement that in Europe we were also growing towards the model we know from uh, the United States, uh, that people have to work two, three jobs to be able to uh, feed their children, pay their public transport. Uh, working poor huh, was uh, uh, something we thought is happening over there in the United States. Uh, but more and more, uh, we saw working poor also in Europe. And to be totally honest, the European level also caused part of this problem by in the banking crisis, Those member states uh, who uh, found themselves in trouble get the advice from uh, the European level, lower your minimum wage, lower the level of collective agreements and no sectoral collective agreements anymore. And I think her statement in 2019 uh, was uh, indeed the signal. We understand that this is not the way forward. I'm a trade unionist myself. I negotiated uh, collective agreements before becoming a member of parliament. So I really believe that the question, what is a fair, what is an adequate payment, is defined in collective agreements and not defined by members of parliament. That is my personal belief. But when we look at the development of collective agreement coverage, in the European Union, or in many member states in the European Union, we see it is declining. In Germany, for instance, we went down from a 74% in 1993 to 50% coverage today, in average. And in Eastern Germany, it's much below that. It is not up to the European Union to define or to have a, a catalog of, uh, of binding criteria and say, okay, only this is fair minimum wage. And what we are ensuring is that we will have an involvement of social partners all over Europe in that process. So we are now talking about the content of the directive. So the wages in many member states are no longer high enough to ensure workers a decent life. So the directive wants to, to address this problem, and how does it do that? In this directive, we ask from all the member states to assess whether or not their uh, minimum wage is adequate. And this is not something like, okay, we sent a short uh, notice to uh, Brussels, yes, we are adequate, but really assess it. 
and we uh, say uh, in this director for checking the adequacy, you could, for instance, work with a basket of goods and services eh? uh, because, you know, purchasing power in the different member states differ. You could also use a international indicator, the so-called Kites uh, Index, which is in a way saying the minimum wage should be related to what's the average wage in a, a member state. So we know the difference is not going too big uh, from one another. The very heart of this directive is, of course, a question of uh, that we have a, a common goal for 80% of collective bargaining coverage all over Europe. So there are some member states, Austria, Sweden, uh, France, who are already covering this, so uh, no homework for them, but uh, most member states do not. And if you do not achieve that aim of 80%, you have to come up with an action plan which has to be presented uh, to the European Commission, where you as a member state, as a government of a member state, um, make clear, make transparent, what are you doing? What is your political action to move towards this aim? And uh, I, I think this is really a game changer because it will move the political debate on collective bargaining into the very center. You can have a lot of different views on what is adequate, but we try to, to come a bit closer to that. So 60% gross median wage and 50% average rate. This is not binding. This is just an advice. Have a look at it. That could be an important point for the debate on, on minimum wages. But what is binding is taking into account the question of purchasing power, taking into account the cost of living, the general level of wages and their distribution, the general growth rate of wages. I think these are really important topics uh, and also with Germany, I think it will have some some impact on the on the debates on the on the development of minimum wages in Germany. Could you tell us a, a couple of words about the issue of the competence of the EU? Some critics said the EU was not competent to um, legislate on wages. <laughs> it is a usual debate here. Uh, because um, if you are uh, opposing something, it's always a nice move uh, to say, well, it's it's out of scope. It's it's not your no competence to do that. So there are some points we have no competence to do that. So the example I gave you with a uh, fifty and sixty percent, we do not have the competence to say this is binding. But if the legal service of the Commission of the Council and of the European Parliament say this is in line with European treaties. When the scientific service of German uh, Parliament, of Deutschen Bundestag, says what is on the table is in line with European treaties, okay, you, you can have a different view on it. But if of three EU institutions, we have a clear st statement from the legal service, we have other legal statements from German Parliament, then you have to say, okay, uh, you can have your doubts, you can oppose it, you can be against, but it is not a legal problem. You talked about the Parliament's position, you defended the Parliament's position in, in the negotiation with the Council. 
compared to the Commission's proposal? What did the Parliament bring to the directive? What changes did uh, the Parliament try to implement? The main change, of course, is that we uh, changed the aim of the collective bargaining coverage. It was a Commission's proposal to have 70%. Uh, well, the, my co-reporter and myself, we proposed 90%. The outcome was 80% as parliament position, but this has been also the outcome of the, of the trilogue. Many colleagues who said, how did you manage that? Everyone expected they are going back to, to the 70% uh, from the commission as a, uh, as a kind of compromise. In the commission's proposal, uh, we had the, that they were talking about a workers organization. Uh, we changed this to trade unions because in our belief, a workers' organization is too broad and we do not want it, this as a, as a kind of open door for, uh, for coming up with yellow unions. This is also an improvement. All the questions on capacity building, the question of ensuring the rights to uh, collective bargaining, uh, these are improvements from the, from the parliament. And uh, I'm very proud that this is... Uh, part also of the whole package we, we agreed on in the trilogues. What can you tell about the binding force of this directive? Because many provisions sound quite vague or not really binding. We are not enforcing uh, any member state to introduce a statutory minimum wage or we are not enforcing member states to raise minimum wages from one day to another. That is not what we, what we are doing. This directive is very binding when we are talking about 80%. If you fail, uh, if you do not have the 80%, you have to come up with the action plan. We have now criterias, uh, European criterias, European-wide criterias uh, for, the, for the discussion uh, uh, on the adequacy of, of minimum wages. The directive itself is, on the one hand, uh, giving a very clear direction, uh, which is really different from the old recipe book uh, of Europe. So it's uh, the direction of saying, uh, if you want to overcome economic difficulties, raise your minimum wage instead of uh, lower your minimum uh, wage. Uh, uh, when you want to have a more equal society, push for more collective bargaining coverage uh, instead of trying to break down uh, uh, the system. So the recipe book is different. The direction is clear and the member states are forced, and that's the binding nature, to sit around the table uh, with their uh, own social partners, uh, draw up a national action plan and send that to Brussels and show the progress they are making uh, on the coverage of collective bargaining and also checking the adequacy of the minimum wage and not only doing this as a tick, tick the box, uh, but really make this a consultation process uh, and send the results every year to Brussels. I think this is also a tool for the, for the social partners uh, to have a close look at the debate uh, that in reality, these criteria are part of the decision-making process because it is European law. And of course, it's not up to me, not up to the parliament to step in uh, if there's harming of European law. Uh, this is uh, something that has to be done by the commission.
that is their job. Let's talk about the um, implementation of the directive. How big are the efforts that member states have to do to reach the goals set by the directives? The first objective, so the collective bargaining coverage, um, and there are seven member states who are already at that level. And these are partly countries uh, like, for instance, Austria, with no statutory minimum wage, uh, but with a very extensive system of making uh, collective agreements applicable to everyone in the uh, sector. Denmark, Italy, uh, Finland, Belgium, France are all above it. So 20 countries uh, with something to work on uh, in this uh, aspect. Uh, this differs from uh, Lithuania, who only have 70% of the workers covered by collective agreements. Seven. Eh? So we have 73 to go, they, they will not reach this in, in one year time. Countries like Croatia and Cyprus uh, are uh, more or less in the middle with uh, 45, 44% percentage of the workers covered by collective agreements. So there is quite some work for some countries uh, together and to work on a national action plan uh, to get this raise to the 80%. If we are talking about the adequacy of the minimum wage compared to the uh, gross and average weights in the uh, member state, then it's only a very small number of countries who are already reaching the goal uh, of uh, this adequacy. It's quite remarkable. Huh? Like a country as Bulgaria, they are there yet, uh, but that's also... Uh, let's say, because uh, the average wage in the country is very low, because the minimum wage is also very low. But uh, if you compare it then with what is an average worker earning in this country, there uh, is uh, nothing to uh, work on. So there I do hope, because Bulgaria only has 23% of the workers covered by a collective agreement, uh, I do hope that if more people are covered by a collective agreement, the average weight is growing and therefore also the goal uh, we set for the minimum wage is, uh, uh, is growing. And luckily we see now the first member states not waiting for the implementation period of two years, but start raising the minimum wage, for instance, here in Belgium. One last question, which is... Um quite open. What is now the role of trade unions in the implementation of the directive? Do you think they can play a role to shape the way the implementation will uh, take place? So now it's the time to draw up uh, your shopping list. What do you want from this uh, debate as trade unions? What kind of facilities do you want? What kind of consultation or social dialogue structures, you, uh, you want to make your shopping list because you know that a member state, at least in two years' time, should send something to Brussels. So this is now the time to debate and prepare your shopping list for the National Action Plan. We are proposing uh, things to, uh, to improve, to ensure, to strengthening a social partnership. And of course, this is a direct pass also to, to trade unions to ensure that uh, national implementation is realized in that spirit, because the spirit of the directive is strengthening social partnership. Dennis Ratke, 
Agnes Jungeris, thank you very much for this interview. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. This was an interview with two members of the European Parliament, Agnes Jungerius of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats and Dennis Radke of the Christian Democrats. They were rapporteurs negotiating with the European Council and the European Commission in the process of adopting a directive that establishes decent minimum wages in the EU. By November 2024, member states have to transpose the applicable provisions in domestic legislation. Until then, we will inform you about the process. If you don't want to miss out on our upcoming episodes, just hit the subscribe button. See you next time. We Work Europe is the podcast from ESA, the European Centre for Workers' Questions, which receives financial support from the European Union. This podcast was narrated by me, Rebecca Sharp. Script and production by Escucha, Audio Identity.